Hi, you're listening to Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. We're in our next lesson from the Sexual Purity series called Do You Not Know? We've titled the message today, Become Who You Really Are. Who are we when we come into God's family? Well, according to scripture, we're sons and daughters of the living God, and we also need reminders on how to grow into that role. As we listen to these messages, it's clear our God is interested in transforming our entire self, not just a moral makeover. So let's listen now to part one of Become Who You Really Are. Here's John. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 20 is a text we're looking at. And you've often heard um, this, this, I guess it's a slogan or motto or saying, but whatever. You've often heard this is, it's not what you know that can hurt you, but it's what you don't know. And this is exactly true for the Corinthians. And it's exactly true for us. And this is what Paul is addressing to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's actually what he's addressing to them throughout the whole letter. But really, really laser focus here in chapter 6. This saying is true because in the case of the Corinthian Christians, they were a theological and moral mess. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20, Paul is revealing that the problem with the Corinthian believers was they didn't really know the gospel and they did not understand the gospel's implications for their daily life in the area of sexual purity. In 1 Corinthians in the letter, Paul, as I said last week, just to review just a little bit, Paul asked the question, do you not know 10 times? Six of those questions, do you not know, occur in chapter 6, and four of those questions occur in, in verses 9 to 20 of which we're studying. Let me just give you the purpose for this, these questions. First, on the one hand, Paul's question, his questions throughout this whole letter, serves as a rebuke. It serves as a rebuke, and it also evidences the intensity of the apostle's feelings about the matters in which he is addressing. So you could kind of look at, as Paul saying, sort of in an exasperated tone, surely you know this. That's what he's really saying here. Do you not know this? Surely you know this. Second, his question is intended throughout this letter to draw the Corinthians' attention to cardinal truths of the Christian faith that ought to be self-evident and that should never escape their thinking. Now, in chapter 6, in the passage that we're looking at, verses 9 to 20, what should not have escaped the Corinthians' thinking was the gospel and the implications of the gospel in regard to sexual purity. But since this was not the case, this is what Paul does, is he reintroduces the gospel and its implications for the believer's life as the remedy for living a life that glorifies God and flees sexual immorality. He reintroduces the gospel to them. Now, as we're going to go through this this morning, you're going to see that this is highly counterintuitive the way that the fallen heart and human mind thinks. So we'll come back to that. But let me just review from last week 
the gospel truths and implications, the fruit of the gospel that he's reintroducing to them to get them to live a life that glorifies God, that's verse 20, and flees sexual immorality, that's verse 18. He reintroduces to them the doctrine of adoption. And that is implied in verse 9 in the word inherit. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Second, he introduces to them the doctrine of regeneration. You have been washed. He introduces to them, and what you're going to look at today in quite detail because people miss this, but he introduces to them definitive sanctification. You have been sanctified. He introduces to them the doctrine of justification. He, introduced, he reintroduces the doctrine of resurrection. He reintroduces the doctrine of union with Christ. He reintroduces the doctrine of redemption, atonement. And he reintroduces the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the fruit of the gospel, all as a remedy for sexual purity. Now, as we noted last week, let me just make a point of this to go back to review for a second. Paul's heavy emphasis on the gospel must not be understood as an exclusive emphasis. In other words, when he emphasizes the gospel so heavily, he's not neglecting the role of the law. In chapter 6, verse 9, you will see that Paul issues a very strong warning against all who are characterized by serial, unrepentant sinning. He says, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. If your life, Paul says, is characterized by open rebellion against God's law, and you have no inward delight or desire to follow God's moral requirements for your life, you have never, ever tasted the gospel. Is that crystal clear? (laughs) And also, not only that, does he issue these warnings, but we're going to see in verse 9, in verse 18, and in verse 20, that he issues three very powerful imperatives to believers that are to be followed and obeyed. Is that clear? That he does not give suggestions for Christians whether or not you can follow or not follow these laws in regard to sexual purity for your life. Clear. But what we learn, listen, from Paul's pastoral strategy for liberating a heart from deep and complex enslavement to sexual sin is that he interweaves through wise pastoral application both law and gospel. And he gives us law for two purposes— to warn us, and to direct us. Both are to be heeded. But he gives us the gospel, now listen, to refocus us, to show us our identity, and to give us the power to do what the law demands. Clear? It is most telling that as Paul weaves this tapestry of law and gospel together in chapter 6, listen carefully here. As he weaves this tapestry of law and gospel together, he unloads on the immoral Corinthians and you and I 
a Mount Everest of gospel truth, which all serves, listen, as the basis for all the imperatives that he gives. Do you know why he does that? It is because the law can tell us what our gracious Father calls us to do in our Christian life, but the law, even for believers, can never animate our hearts and motivate our hands to do it. Only the gospel is the power of God for salvation, which is God's means of saving us totally. And this is what the Corinthians had lost sight of. This is what they did not know. This is what you and I do not know. The gospel way of holiness is not self-evident to us. It is not self-evident. It is, do you know what is self-evident to the fallen human heart? Religion. And religion says this, the, the role of religion in a fallen human heart is to give people moral instruction, pep talks, self-help therapies, behavioral modification seminars so that they'll no longer be dominated by their sinful habits. It is not what the scriptures prescribe. It's not the Christian faith. Paul reminds us in this chapter that the Corinthians did not know the gospel, and he tells us that the answer to listen, not only their guilt and their condemnation, but the answer to their corruption and their slavery to sin was the gospel. Augustus Toplady spoke of the gospel in his great hymn. He said, the gospel is the double cure. It saves us from both sin's guilt and power. Paul is going to argue that the gospel applies not only to the forgiveness of our sin, but the gospel also applies to the total transformation of the whole person, beginning with regeneration, which gives to us a whole brand new identity, not a moral makeover. It gives us a whole new beginning, a whole new starting point. And he says, through this new identity, it leads to new obedience. Oh, you obey. Believe me, you obey. We don't downplay the third use of the law in this church. You do obey, but it's how do you obey? And that is the part that is so counterintuitive to all of our way of thinking. Ezekiel in his prophecy said it like this. In Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, the counterintuitive gospel way of holiness goes like this. God will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols, sexual immorality included, I will cleanse you. You don't cleanse yourself. I will give you a new heart, not a moral makeover. I will give you a new spirit and put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And when I put my spirit within you, listen very carefully. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and listen and be careful to obey my rules. Did you hear that? The Holy Spirit will cause you to walk according to his law and keep it carefully. 
And he doesn't do it by coercion, and he doesn't do it by lamb blasting you. He does it by grace. The Holy Spirit in the gospel gives what the law demands, but it's so counterintuitive. The Holy Spirit doesn't give us moral pep talks, be better, try harder. It's not what he does. We're going to come back to that. The the, The point that I'm trying to make you see is this, is that the only source of life, the only source of power for living the Christian life and for giving obedience to the law, which you are to give, is to know the gospel and its implications for your Christian life. The Corinthians' ethical failures stem from a fundamental problem of their lack of knowing who they are in Christ. The Corinthians were suffering from an identity crisis. Paul knew that what the Corinthians needed was to be given a fresh knowledge of the gospel and of its implications for their daily life. And so, in chapter 6, verses 9 to 20, he asked the Corinthians four questions, and he begins each question with the, with the question, do you not know? Because they didn't know. These four questions are intended to reintroduce the Corinthians and to reintroduce you and me to the gospel and its implications, which alone produces holiness and obedience in our life. Let no one ever, 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 ever accuse us or you or anybody in this church of preaching license. That accusation drove Paul crazy. It drove Jesus crazy. The the Pharisees came to Jesus. What new doctrine is Jesus teaching? We do not teach license in this church. We teach the gospel way of holiness, and it is utterly counterintuitive to anything most people have ever heard. Paul is calling on the Corinthians, know who you are in Christ, and then act like it. Live in accordance with your new identity, your new state of being. This is Paul's gospel philosophy. What is the gospel way of holiness? This is it. Become who you are. Be who you are. That is what Paul is teaching here. That's what he teaches in every letter in the New Testament that he wrote. That's what Peter teaches. That's what every apostle in the New Testament teaches. That's what every author in the Old Testament has ever taught. That's all the scriptures teach. Be who you are. Now, the gospel philosophy of become and be who you are is infinitely different from religion, which calls you to be something that you are not. Religion is saying, be better, do better, try harder, break this habit, do all this stuff, and you're not that. The scriptures teach, know who you are and be that. Let me just give you an example here from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. When we come to it, Paul's going to tell the Corinthians, you once were serially unrepentant, sexually immoral idolaters. You once were adulterers. You once were men who practiced homosexuality. You once were thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. But you are no longer these things. So, here's the therefore 
because you are not this identity anymore, but now you're this, the therefore is, in light of that, be who you are. Stop living and behaving like what you were, because you're not that anymore. You have been washed, that is regeneration, brought to life and made a new creature in Christ. You have a whole new identity. You have not been given a moral makeover. You have been given a whole new identity. You have been washed. You have been sanctified, which we're going to come back to. You have been justified. You have a completely new identity. You are now saints. You are now citizens of the kingdom of God. Therefore, act like a citizen of the kingdom of God. That is what the scriptures teach is the gospel way of holiness. Now, for the rest of the morning, I'm just going to help you understand this gospel philosophy of be who you are. Because you might be thinking, how could Paul call the Corinthians, who were an absolute theological and moral mess, saints? I thought a saint is somebody who has lived an exceptionally holy life and therefore worthy of that title. Are Christian saints or sinners? I'm going to help you with that. The answer is found in the scriptures in terms of how the the Bible uses the terms saint and sanctified. So the rest of the morning, we're just going to look at these two words because this has everything to do with what Paul is teaching here in this chapter. So let's look at the word saints for a second. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul begins his letter by calling and addressing these theological and morally corrupt Christians saints. In fact, he would often begin all of his letters just about by addressing his readers as saints. The only people who are not worthy of being called saints are legalistic, self-righteous people who think they're earning their righteousness by what they do. Paul doesn't address those people as saints. He addresses them with a warning. You don't know the gospel. The Greek word for saint is hagios, which literally means this, to be separated unto God. A saint in this context refers not to your character, but to your state of being. This new state of being is not based on anything that you have achieved. This whole new identity and state of being is, ba- is all based upon God's act of setting us apart from the world and from the dominion of our sin for himself. It's all based on God's actions, not yours. It's God's achievement, not yours. Jerry Bridges says in Respectable Sins, which I hope you pick up and read, because I got a lot of this from Jerry and I got a lot of the rest of it from Michael Horton because they're both very helpful with this, but he says... We are made saints by the immediate supernatural action of the Holy Spirit alone who works this change deep within our inner being so that we do, in fact, become new creations in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. You have been set apart by God for God. Paul describes this change in Acts chapter 26 like this. He says, turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place, listen, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says like this. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom that is God's rule and blessing of his beloved son. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. You hear that? It's never coming back. We think it hasn't passed away. We think it's going to come back and stay with us forever. It has passed away. And behold, the new has come. And so every believer in this sense is a saint. From From the most, quote, mature to the most immature in the church, everybody, every believer is a saint in this sense. Let's look at the word sanctify. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, and look how Paul says this in verse 2. He says, to the church of God, that is it in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, if you read the whole book of 1 Corinthians, the last thing you would think with these group of Christians were sanctified. And Paul begins this letter saying, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be hagias, holy ones, separated unto God, saints. Now, here, Paul uses both terms in this verse. Now, sanctification is most often thought of as a process or this ongoing work within believers whereby you are progressively and inwardly being renewed and conformed to Christ's likeness. And that is true. There's an aspect to that, and we'll come to that. But that's not what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 1-2, nor in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, when he says, you've been washed, you've been sanctified. The Scriptures use the term sanctified in a much broader way. Theologians make a distinction between what is called definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. We are talking about definitive sanctification. And listen carefully. There will never be any progressive sanctification unless there is first definitive sanctification on God's part. And that's what Paul's trying to teach us. And we'll come back to that and you'll see the implication So what is definitive sanctification? The term sanctified means to be set apart. It means to be separate. God in the scripture, when he sanctifies stuff, he separates people, utensils, clothes, animals, whole nations from their ordinary common use, listen, for his own special use. So let me give you some examples. In Exodus chapter 40, verses 9 through 10, the utensils in the tabernacle and later the temple were said to be holy. Now, how could that be holy? It's because God took them from their ordinary common use and set them apart for a sacred purpose of use in the tabernacle and temple. So they became holy. They became set apart. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 4, the priest's garments, what they wore, were called holy. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 26, the priests were said to be holy unto the Lord as they ministered before God in the tabernacle and temple because God had set them apart for a specific purpose for his own use. 
In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 24 through 26, the entire nation of Israel was set apart from other nations and declared by God to be holy. Listen to what God says. I am the Lord God who has separated you from the peoples. Do you hear that? Separated you from the peoples? Separated from the world? You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean, which has nothing to do with dietary habits of eating. It has all to do with being holy, this idea of definitive sanctification. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy before me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Do you hear that? He took them from the world. He set them apart so that they would be his. Therefore, he says, you should be holy. The New Testament carries over this same meaning and shows that sanctification is, first of all, God's act of setting us apart from the world for himself. Thanks, John. That's Become Who You Really Are, Part 1. More from the Do You Not Know series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time.